This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Flint isn't just a city that suffered one of the worst public health disasters in history. According to my next guest, the city's significant history of activism played a big role in the way Flint residents chose to fight back. And their efforts brought democracy to bear in a situation that was otherwise mostly without it. Ben Pauley is an assistant professor of political science at Kettering University, and his book is Flint Fights Back, Environmental Justice and the Flint Water Crisis. Uh, We are talking about the Flint Water Crisis as part of the WDET book club series where we are reading Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Benjamin Pauley here to talk about his work in this area. Ben, it's great to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's start at the beginning and with something that uh, I, I found pretty surprising about you. In the summer of 2015, so after we knew what was happening in the city of Flint, you moved your wife and your toddler son to the city. Talk about that decision. Well, I should say we actually did not know much about what was happening in Flint uh, at the time as far as water was concerned. We had heard that there had been some issues with the water and that they were fiddling with the water treatment process at the water treatment plant, but we weren't given any kind of an indication that there was a public health threat associated with the water. Mm. And so um, being believers in tap water in general, when uh, we moved to Flint, we we did make use of the water for drinking and cooking and so forth. And my son was three years old at the time. So um, he was exposed at the very least through cooking. Mm-hmm. And when we started hearing whispers of lead, naturally we became uh, pretty concerned. But uh, when we showed up in, in June 2015, it's important to remember there was no official Flint water crisis. Not yet. There had been already a lot of activism mm-hmm. going on around the crisis, but uh, and, and some official admissions of you know problems with water quality. But the but the official narrative was that things were under control and, and getting better every day. And so uh, it wasn't until a, a few months into uh, our time in Flint that uh, the issue started to blow up in, in a big way, mm. um, certainly from our perspective. And and you had to grapple with uh, this, this problem as you were sort of... Uh, you know, adjusting to, to to living in Flint, you've got this this water issue that unfolds. Talk about how your family dealt with it. Well, our immediate concern, of course, was to protect our son in particular, and uh, the main way we did that was to install a point of use filter on our kitchen faucet. That in and of itself was actually rather complicated. I spent weeks going to the hardware store trying to get an adapter that would make it fit, Um, but I was unsuccessful in doing so. We had to replace the whole faucet, and it was quite aggravating. And, and, you know, there have been a lot of residents who've had similar issues but don't have the, you know, resources to be able to deal with them in the same way. So um, once we finally got the filter on there, um, I figured we were okay uh, as a family. You know, we've learned more and more about the filters as as, uh, we've gone along. In fact, there was just some breaking news out of Newark where they found that the filters are not 
um, maybe as effective at filtering lead as we thought they were, which is a is a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, once once we were situated in that way, I, I you know I felt like our family was more or less safe. We we did not have. Um, you know, a lot of issues with bathing and showering the way that a lot of residents did. We, you know, we did have brown water coming out of the tap at one point, and and uh, that you know that certainly was was a concern. Um, and later on, uh, you know, my my father-in-law moved in with us, and and he was very uh, vulnerable health-wise, and so there were some special considerations around um, his exposure to the water, but. Um, you know, I, I should say that I, I got involved in, uh, you know, the response to the crisis in Flint, not so much because I felt like my own family's health was in peril, um, but because I realized that a lot of residents were um, suffering uh, a great deal uh, because of the uh, water quality issues um, and that this was going to be a, a turning point in the moment in the history of, of the community that I was actively trying to sort of integrate myself mm. uh, into. And so, uh, you know, once I realized that there had been um, a real community mobilization around the water issue, you know, going all the way back to, to 2014, and that it was very much ongoing. I decided that I needed to be involved personally. Hmm. So, so let's talk about the sort of framework of uh, the book that, that that you've written, which is a little different from the other books that uh, that we've highlighted in in the book series here about about Flint. Um, this idea that the activism that took place in Flint uh, played such a significant role and that it brought democracy to the process of finding solutions and, and going in a different direction. Talk about how you came to that idea. Well, in the summer of, of 2015, when the lead issue started to blow up, um, you know, there was a lot of coverage, of course, that was coming coming out of the water issues in Flint. And I started to realize at that time that there had been um, a lot of water activism um, over the, you know, preceding months. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in activism in, in general, sort of on a personal and a professional level. Um, back before I, I went to grad school, I was involved in some activism in my hometown of Tacoma, Washington. Um, as a grad student, I was particularly interested in the study of social movements and political ideologies, and in particular, the intersection of ideas and action. And so as I started paying more and more attention to the activism that had gone on and, and was going on in Flint, um, I became more and more intrigued. I, I started to realize, A, that you know, activists had seemingly played a pretty significant role in um, bringing attention to the crisis in the first place, but then also applying pressure to officials to get the city switched off of the Flint River. Uh, so this seemed to be a case in which activism had had a real impact and, and was continuing to have an impact um, as the conversation shifted toward what kind of help does Flint need. Activists were on the front lines, you know, advocating for resources, and that seemed like it was a struggle that was worth being a part of. Mm. But then beyond that, um, I was intrigued by the way in which the activists were talking about the crisis. They were talking not only about water, particularly water quality, but also water affordability and access. Um, they were talking about democracy, uh, and they were 
suggesting at times that the water crisis was a kind of outgrowth of a broader crisis of democracy. And that's when I really started to look into the phenomenon of emergency management mm -hmm. in more depth and um, kind of the history of Flint under uh, emergency management and the extent to which an absence of democracy at the local level may have contributed to the decision-making around uh, Flint's water source and water treatment, as well as the extent to which residents were listened to or, or not when they started to speak up uh, about water. So there seemed to be very good reason to me to explore those issues. Um, but uh, again, I was really following the activist lead in doing that. Mm. I was determined to spend most of my time just kind of listening to them and learning from them. And so it's their kind of analytic of the water crisis, which is really at the heart of the book. And And I offer it not because I, uh, you know, think that, you know, it's necessarily right about everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, it's a very, very complex situation that mm -hmm. we've been dealing with in Flint. And there are many different ways to uh, analyze and interpret it. Um, but I did personally come to find the activist take on the crisis to be very useful. And I think it will be useful to other people who maybe aren't yet familiar with it. Yeah. Um, this idea of, of, um, of how hard it was for them to get people to listen in the first place is something that comes up over and over when I talk uh, to people in Flint um, about this, uh, about the water crisis. Um, uh, do you believe that if the democratic infrastructure in Flint had been in place instead of the state, uh, that they would have had an easier time getting people to respond? I mean, is that one of the ways in which the democratic uh, infrastructure failed here? That's certainly one of the things that I look at in the book. Of course, it's very difficult to say, you know, counterfactually with any certainty what would have sure. happened if you had an alternate you know, political structure in place at the time. But certainly what we're taught to believe about uh, representative democracy is that it offers a variety of inlets for, you know, popular influence. Uh, when you have people who are in power because they've been elected to their positions, then it is their job to be responsive to people when uh, they are peti petitioned to take some sort of action. Of course, you also have the possibility of holding them accountable through electoral uh, politics. Um, and those mechanisms of, of popular influence and accountability uh, are taken away by emergency management uh, at the local level. And so at the very least, uh, it is less likely that people who are making decisions are going to be responsive to or even interested in uh, popular pressures. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's hard to believe that somebody who felt like they might lose the next election if they didn't listen, you know, mm. wouldn't have taken uh, residents uh, a little bit more seriously when they first came forward with demands. I mean, it, it must be said that, uh, you know, residents, uh, activists, you know, did, did make a, a certain effort to get the local uh, officials that were in, in place mm -hmm. uh, to at least advocate on their behalf. But of course, they had you know, little to no power to, to do so. And so yeah. that was definitely part of the, the dynamic. And, and, it, and it's one of the things that I think in, you know, inspired 
residents to look beyond those traditional mechanisms of representative democracy to exert an influence. They took their concerns into the streets, as it were, mm-hmm. and turned to things like, uh, you know, protesting and marching and, um, you know, petitioning in other ways to uh, create the change that they were looking for. Yeah. Uh, we've got just a minute left. I wonder if you can talk about what you think we should have learned from not just the, the water crisis, but this role of activism uh, in in shaping the response to it and shaping this the solutions. What should other cities be taking away from this? Well, um, I, I think it's important for us to understand like how collective action really works. Um, it's complicated, it's messy, but it, it also involves a whole lot of people who kind of create the, the preconditions at the very least for any kind of significant social change to happen. And one of the things that concerned me about some of the, cri- uh, the coverage that the crisis has gotten, I mean, even the popular mobilization around the crisis is that there's a strong tendency to focus on hero narratives, to select a few main figures who happen to be conveniently located in one way or or another, um, easy to access, and people will go back to them again and again and again and again, um, as if they are the, you know, authoritative interpreters of what Mm -hmm. happened in Flint. Uh, And what I've tried to do with my work uh, is to delve more deeply into the popular response to the crisis and to look at all of the different rivulets of um, agency that kind of had to come together in order to make it uh, possible to uh, get the crisis recognized for what it was and ultimately address it in an effective way. And so I hope that that's part of the story that other cities that are facing similar uh, issues can, um, you know, maybe learn something from. Hmm. Okay, Ben Pauly, professor of political science at Kettering University and author of Flint Fights Back, Environmental Justice and Democracy in the Flint Water Crisis. It's really great to have you here with us. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.